Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm here with Dr. Christopher Stringer. He is a research leader in human origins at the Natural History Museum. His early research was on the relationship of Neanderthals and early modern humans in Europe, but through his work on the recent African origin model for modern human origins, he now collaborates with archaeologists, dating specialists, and geneticists in attempting to reconstruct the evolution of modern humans globally. As well as many scientific papers, he's also written a number of books, uh, most recently, Britain, One Million Years of the Human Story with Rob Dinis, I guess that's the correct pronunciation of the name, and Our Human Story from last year with Louise Humphrey. So, Dr. Stringer, it's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for accepting the invitation. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, great. So, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit today about the evolution of hominins, right? I guess that nowadays that's the correct yes. term for, to refer to uh, different species of uh, humans, let's say, because, I mean, there are hominids that include yeah, well, other close primates, but then hominins that include yes. the homo genus, basically. Yeah, so hominins, in fact, is a bit wider than that. So for humans, even people have different usage of humans. There are some people who think that modern humans are the only humans and they don't use human even for Neanderthals. I, I think that's wrong. So I use human for members of the genus Homo. Mm -hmm. So Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalensis. But beyond that, hominins applies to really everything on our lineage back to the common ancestor we shared with the ancestors of chimpanzees. So it's everything on the lineage which could be five, seven, eight million years, something like that. Yeah. So very close to our last common ancestor with chimpanzees and bonobos. Yes, right? that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, one very interesting thing that people are trying to understand in paleoanthropology and related areas is where we came from. I mean, Homo sapiens, but also other hominin species. And I guess that throughout the years and the decades, there have been different proposals out there. Some of them have to do with multi-regionalism, others with recent African origins, also the assimilation model. Uh, I mean, is it the case that nowadays we, we already have a clear picture as to which one of these is the best? account of our human origins. Okay, yeah, I think a number of these models are simplifications of what we now see as a complex reality. So I think comparing the models we had, let's say 20 years ago, we can say that the strict recent African origin model that we only originated in Africa has been falsified. And equally, the what I call the classic multi-regional model that we evolved more or less everywhere humans lived in the last one and a half or two million years, I think that's been falsified as well. So we come to an intermediate area where we certainly have uh, modern humans mainly originating in Africa, what, what I would call mostly out of Africa. Um, but obviously there have been contributions from human lineages outside of Africa, such as the Neanderthals, such as the Denisovans. So it's a more complex story. So even 
we look at Gunter Breuer's model of uh, uh, out of Africa and hybridization. That's one that I have said is probably closest to the truth, but it's a simplification. The assimilation model, that for me is a model that has a greater proportion of mixing outside and over a much wider area. So I think in the end, we will need to see how many of these interbreeding events they were and what proportion of the populations were mixing. And I think that will determine how we pin down these models, but it's somewhere between now out of Africa and hybridization and assimilation. I would say those are the two models that approximate best the reality. So at a certain point, you refer to the fact that we hybridized with both Neanderthals and Denisovans, right? And uh, I mean, should we deal with Neanderthals and Denisovans as being different species? Because, I mean, one of the cruxes, I guess, with the classification of species is that one of the definitions that was very prevalent, at least until very recently, was the one that uh, for for different individuals to be part of the same species, they would have to be able to reproduce between themselves and then to generate also uh, descendants that would be able to, uh, that would be fertile, let's say. But, and th that happened, in fact, as far as we know, with Neanderthals and with Denisovans, between them and us, Homo sapiens. So, I mean, isn't it a bit tricky? Yeah, it's very tricky. I've just written a blog about this question of whether Neanderthals are the same species as us, and I recommend everyone to look for that and read it. Um, so, yeah, the, I learned the biological species definition, that species are reproductively isolated from each other. I learned that at school. That was the standard definition we were taught. And it's a useful definition in, in many ways, and I would say until the last maybe few years, because what we see now is that many what you would regard as good species, so members of the genus that represents uh, dogs and, and wolves, uh, members of the genus that represent bears, um, the horses, there, there are many of these genera of mammals which interbreed with each other within those genera, things that we would regard as good species. So wolves and jackals, polar bears and brown bears, for example, they do hybridize successfully. On one estimate, 16% at least of all bird species interbreed with each other. That's a recent estimate based on, on good data. So I think the problem is not with species, but with the biological species concept, because I think that, in a sense, is outliving its usefulness in the genomic age, where we see that there's a lot of hybridization happening between closely related species. The reality is that in mammals, and, and certainly I think in humans, that these species diverge, and it may take millions of years for the divergence to produce full reproductive isolation. So we and Neanderthals separated maybe five or 600,000 years ago. We had not yet developed full reproductive isolation. So that's why you and I both have some Neanderthal DNA in our genomes, pretty certainly. Um, and so I think the problem is with biological species concept. The trouble is, you know, there are dozens of species concepts. Which ones do we use? I don't think, I mean, these are humanly created concepts. So nature doesn't play along with our nice, neat concepts of what a species should be. So I think that, yes, I regard Neanderthals as a different species from us, and that's based on morphology. So if we look at the brain case shape, 
it's quite different in a modern human and a Neanderthal. And we can, even with not too many measurements, we can separate them 100% of the time from each other. We can measure the pelvis uh, and we can separate them 100% of the time. Uh, so I think that suggests we were separate lineages. We had hundreds of thousands of years of largely separate evolution. There may have been a little bit of gene flow, but these lineages nevertheless were diverging and they were continuing to diverge. If fate hadn't created that meeting 50, 60,000 years ago, they would have continued to diverge on separate continents and become even more distinct. So I think that we, you know, I don't get hung up on the species idea. I call them a different species, but I recognize there was some interbreeding. Equally with Denisovans, we don't actually, we haven't decided whether they're a different species. They are as different from us as Neanderthals are genetically, but morphologically, of course, we have only very limited information about what they look like. We're beginning to build up a bit of a picture. I think eventually we probably will regard them as a different species, but we need a lot more information on that. Yeah. So we also have to be careful in the ways by which we apply our classification systems and also how we develop them. And I mean, there are different ways of classifying things like, for example, species in this case, and maybe we could do it uh, genetically, anatomically, as you said, and also through other means, right? That's right, yes. I think obviously we've got the genome now of Neanderthals, several of them, Denisovans, we're building up more data. And we've got, of course, many hundreds, thousands of, of modern human genomes. So genetically, I'm sure geneticists could come up with defining features for those three groups. Anatomically, for modern humans and Neanderthals, we certainly can. Uh, even the little middle ear bones, the, those three little ear bones uh, are completely different in a Neanderthal from a modern human. You can capture their shape with careful measurement. And the ear bones of, middle ear bones of us and Neanderthals are more different on average than those of chimpanzees and gorillas are from each other. And they're even different genera uh, in primate classification. So I think it's morphologically, we can certainly say they're different species, but that does not mean reproductive isolation given what we've already said. Uh, we're focusing mostly on Neanderthals and Homo sapiens because, I mean, it's, they are probably the most recent species in the, huma, the, the Homo genus, let's say. But, uh, I mean, going back a little bit, wasn't it the case that the first Homo species that moved out of Africa was, um, was the, the Homo erectus? Well, probably. I think we can't be certain about even that now. Um, yes, on the data that we generally take, then Homo erectus was present in Dominici in Georgia at about 1.8 million years. Soon after that, we have its presence in China and Indonesia in Java. Um, but of course, there's some stone tool evidence that some people claim for more than 2 million years ago that there were already some kind of human-like creatures in China, for example, at two million years. So who were they? And then, of course, and I'm sure we're going to come on to the Homo floresiensis and Homo luzinensis, for some people, those species suggest a more primitive ancestor got out of Africa before Homo erectus and then became isolated and survived for millions of years over in the Philippines and in the island of Flores. Now, that, of course, is one view. Other people take the view that these are derivatives of Homo erectus, but I think it's uncertain. 
And I think we have to keep an open mind whether there couldn't have been, you know, either a very primitive Erectus that got out, even more primitive maybe than Dominici, uh, or was there a precursor species, what we might call something like Homo habilis, even an Australopithecine, could they have got out earlier on and founded some of these more primitive lineages outside of Africa? And I think we don't know the answer to that. There are huge areas of Asia and Indonesia where we've got no fossil evidence, and I think it's going to be very important to see what those areas will provide in the future. And even Erectus itself, I think I know. Yeah, I think you were going to ask me maybe later on about things we the, the known unknowns, and one of them I think is is Homo erectus, and I think such a widespread species over nearly two million years, it's very unlikely that, that is all just one species. I think even the erectus groupings, with more careful study and analysis, are going to prove to be probably different species within that grouping we call erectus. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we've got the rectus, it spread out of Africa, it went to Eurasia and Australia, is that it? Not to Australia, uh, strictly speaking, but Australasia, if we define Indonesia as part of there. And, of course, for those who think that Floresiensis is a descendant of Erectus, then it got as far as the island of Flores, at least. So, yes, certainly down into Southeast Asia, across some of the islands, what are now islands in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it spread. And then, what what were the steps that, that we had uh, from moving to Erectus, to Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. I mean, it, it was all, uh, there was also Homo heidelbergensis, right? Yes, and Homo antecessor. So there are these other species around between Erectus and, and uh, Neanderthals and sapiens. So I think the status of these species is, is very uncertain now. Uh, for 30 years or more, I argued that Heidelbergensis was the best common ancestor for the Neanderthals and for Homo sapiens. And in the last few years, I've rethought that, along with some other people as well, because it seems that, you know, the face is is really quite important in these analyses. So that this, what we call a modern human face, you know, quite delicate and retracted under the skull vault with rather delicate cheekbones. Um, Some of us have viewed that as being derived. So when we find it in a fossil like Jebel Ihud at 300,000 Africa, then we put that on the sapiens lineage because of this more modern looking face. But in fact, now taking a wider view, we see many fossils from China in the middle Pleistocene that have really what you could call a modern looking face. It's very big with a wide nose, but the basic structure is modern. And Homo antecessor at 850,000 years in Spain has a face which looks modern. And I've disputed that in the past, but I think now that actually the modern face is primitive. We kept it. The Neanderthals moved away from it, and so did Heidelbergensis. Those big Heidelbergensis fossils from Bodo, from Broken Hill, and so on. For me now, I, I think that they were moving away from the primitive and the ancestral modern human pattern in their faces. But just to have this clear, is it the case that Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis both have a common ancestor? Or was it the case that Homo erectus diverged into different species and then we have a parallel evolution? Let's mm. say. Well, genetically, 
the estimates of when we had a common ancestor with Neanderthals center around maybe 500,000, something like that. There's some morphological suggestions it could go further back. If it stays around five or 600,000 for that common ancestor, then we're probably already into the time zone of post-Erectus populations in Africa and Europe. So I would say that Erectus may carry on in the Far East in some form, but at least in the in Africa and, and Western Eurasia, there had already been the evolution of new species. And, okay, some people favour Antecessor as being close to the common ancestor of us Neanderthals. Others in the past, like me, have favoured Hydabagensis. I think now we have to say we're not clear where the common ancestor lived and who it was. And that common ancestor may yet to be discovered. And the common ancestor doesn't have to have lived in Africa. It could have lived in Asia. It could even have lived in Europe. But I don't think any of the, the current fossils fit nicely into that idea of a common ancestor. So we, I think we still await finding the best candidate for the common ancestor of us and Neanderthals. Mm -hmm. So there are still missing links out there, probably. Yeah, I, I, we try and avoid that missing link term. But yes, there are the, the actual ancestors and those closest to them are, are I mean, it's difficult to, rip, to identify an ancestor, of course, because it should be ideally primitive if it's, a, if it's an ancestor to give rise to these derived forms. But yeah, I think it, at the moment we, we can't point to any group and say that's the likely ancestor. Um, the fossils are going to be there somewhere, but there are, again, parts of Western Asia where we have only very fragmentary fossil evidence from this time period. And maybe there we will find this elusive common ancestor of us and Neanderthals. And uh, in our evolutionary history, Homo erectus moved out of Africa, Homo sapiens as well. Were there any other major out of Africa migrations by other species or not? Hmm. Well, as I say, it depends if there could have been any pre-erectus ones, which is a possibility, I think. Uh, so even before erectus, there may have been some. Um, of course, where the common ancestor of us and Neanderthals derived, if that was in Africa, then there would have had to have been an out of Africa to then give rise to the Neanderthals and Denisovans. But if it was outside of Africa, that common ancestor lived, then we'd actually have an into Africa event to give rise to the Sapiens lineage. So I think we're not sure about that. And for Sapiens itself, of course, it's likely that there were multiple dispersers of Sapiens. We're only beginning to learn about some of those earlier ones. So genetically, of course, it looks like there was a dispersal at 55 or 60,000 out of Africa. And genetically, that is the one which gave rise to almost all the diversity outside of Africa. But we know from fossils that there were the populations of Shkul and Kafse present in Israel uh, between about 100 and 130,000 years. Uh, possibly older, depending. So that could be one or two populations there. Then we have this Mislia fossil from Israel, which may be a little bit older. And of course, recently I was on a paper which suggested that there was a fragmentary fossil in Greece from Apidima Cave, which is over 200,000 years old. And at least in the parts preserved at the back of the skull, it looks like a sapiens. I mean, we have to be cautious because it's only the back of a skull but at least it does not look like a Neanderthal or an Erectus or a Heidelbergensis. So this could even be evidence of an earlier sapiens, more than 200,000 years, getting into at least Eastern Europe, and who knows, possibly going eastwards towards China. We don't know yet. 
before we move on to the next topic, let me just ask you this. In terms of dating techniques that we have nowadays, uh, what would you say are the major limitations of them? And I mean, how far back can we go with an acceptable margin of error? Let's yeah, say. yeah. Well, each method has its strengths and weaknesses, of course. They work on different materials. Um, and ideally, you would always have two independent methods applied to a fossil or a, a stratigraphy to date it. That's the ideal, but it isn't always possible. So radiocarbon, of course, is very useful, but as you know, as you go back in time, you know, the amount of radiocarbon you're trying to measure goes down and down and down, and by the time you are more than 40,000 years ago, you're only measuring tiny amounts of radiocarbon, and even a little bit of contamination can give you uh, a falsely young reading. So this is the problem, radiocarbon can't be used on the older sites. We've got methods like argon-argon um, dating, uh, and potassium argon dating, these are great methods, but again, they require volcanic rocks. So if you don't have volcanic rocks, you can't use that method. That would be a method of choice in, in many cases if you've got the volcanic rocks. And I think there are probably underappreciated methods which will become more important in the future. So so-called relative methods can also allow you to check your absolute dating. So for example, um, micro tephra. So you get volcanic eruptions, very fine volcanic dust can spread for thousands of kilometers. And I was involved in a project which looked at the dating of sites around the Mediterranean using this very fine volcanic dust. And if it settles in a cave site or a lake site, if you can time when that eruption happened from its source, then you know that that level must be that age. So a famous example, of course, is the Toba eruption. About 74,000 years ago, there was a massive eruption from Southeast Asia, which spread volcanic uh, dust for thousands of kilometers. You find it in India, it's even been picked up in Africa. So that's a marker horizon that can give you a cross-check of your dating at 74,000 years. So I think a method like that in the future uh, can certainly be more widely applied as we map more and more of these eruptions. And there were many in the Mediterranean region, for example, that could be used. And then there's amino acid dating. Now this got rather a bad reputation, you know, in the last 30 years, but there are people like Kirsty Penkman in, in Britain, in York, and Kirsty is developing amino acid dating, I think in a much more accurate and reliable way, applied to uh, mollusk shells, possibly to be applied in the future to things like elephant teeth. Now, if that can be made to work, again, it's a relative method, but it can be used to test your stratigraphy. It would certainly show when a fossil was completely wrongly dated, when it's out of place in its stratigraphy, uh, of which, of course, we've got many questions around fossils and their dating at many sites. So those methods, microtephra and amino acid dating, I think are important for the future. In terms of genetic analysis, are there any techniques that we can also use to date uh, human remains, fossils, and things like that, or are they used mostly to try to establish uh, phylogenetic relationships between different species, individuals, and so on? Mm. Well, yes, yeah, so of course, 
we've got many different genes in our genomes and in a sense all of them have an evolutionary history uh, you know a time scale attached to them some of them go back to before our common ancestor with chimpanzees some of them have only developed purely within a local population of, of homo sapiens so in a sense they can be used relatively but if you want something more absolute then mitochondrial dna of course has been used to provide a sort of clock for human evolution and of course it depends on calibration points it's not independent but for modern humans people are using it to try and calibrate some of the events and so that's how for example the spread of modern humans out of Africa both the Y chromosome and mitochondrial DNA give you a calibration it's not perfect but it gives you an independent calibration which you can compare with other dating methods and for example the semen del huesos uh, Neanderthal DNA or early Neanderthal DNA at more than 400,000 years old that again can be tested with mitochondrial DNA um, and it can give you uh, quite a good match with the suggested dating from the site the Denisovan too the Denisovan DNA that can be used to give rough dating to the Denisovan DNA sequences at the site uh, is it the case that we can also use genetic analysis, particularly, for example, population genetic approaches to understand the relationship between different indi individuals, different populations and even different species and uh, also possibly understanding a little bit better their origins? Yes, I, I mean... I'm sure you've interviewed some geneticists on this who will be able to answer this question much better than I can. But certainly, for example, in the case of the Denisovans, it's clear that overall their genome suggests that they are more closely related to Neanderthals than to us. So they are an early branch from the Neanderthal lineage. So we must have had a split, first of all, of their common ancestor and our common ancestor. That was let's say five or six hundred thousand years ago and then later on perhaps four hundred and fifty thousand years ago the Denisovan lineage split off from the Neanderthal lineage so we can sort the relationship of those three based on their genomes um, but even within Denisovans of course some people have argued that even Denisovans are very varied there may be three subgroups of Denisovans that they themselves have differentiated uh, at different times and in Southeast Asia, we will actually find distinct Denisovan-like populations. Anatomically speaking, and going back in history, what is the point in which we can already talk about anatomically modern humans? Mm. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, and yes, it depends which features we want to choose to define, if we like, diagnose Homo sapiens. So. Um, you know, we can look at some of the features, a small brow ridge, for example, a globular brain case, a chin on the lower jaw, uh, this small face that I've talked about already tucked under the, the brain case, a narrow pelvis, um, those particular shaped ear bones that we have. Um, so all of those can be used to recognize anatomically modern Homo sapiens. But of course, unless they evolved in a punctuational way all at once, they obviously they will be staggered in terms of when they appeared in the fossil record so the problem is which one are we going to choose let's say as our defining feature and this is where we get into problems so the globular brain case well yes if we look at the people at Shkul and Kafsay 
100,000 or maybe a bit older in Israel. Um, I've called those anatomically modern humans, but they still don't have, for some people with the very finest measurements, they don't have the fully globular brain case that we find at 30 or 40,000 years. So even there, there is some change. Certainly some of them have very large and distinctive teeth compared with recent humans. So again, they're distinct. Some of them don't even have a strongly expressed chin. There's variation in chin development. So this is the problem. When you're dealing with essentially largely gradual evolution of these features, um, it's difficult to make a cutoff point. So I would say, yes, for me, the Omokibish one specimen, of which there's a partial skeleton and a partial skull, for me, that has enough of these Homo sapiens features that I'm still happy to call it an anatomically modern human at maybe 195,000 years old. But when we get to Jebel Ihud at more than 300,000 years in Morocco, yes, it has that modern looking face, although that could be primitive. Yes, it has a few features in its teeth, which we find more commonly in Homo sapiens, but it doesn't have the nice globular brain case. So this is what we'd expect with a primitive Homo sapiens, just as with a primitive Neanderthal, like in my view, the Cimitar Huesos people at 400,000 in Europe, these are very early members of their lineage. They have not yet developed all the features of the late members of the lineage, which are the ones we know best. So, yeah, this is the reality of evolution. And do we know how far back in time we could go and uh, recognize other Homo sapiens as people like us at a behavioral level? Yes, yeah, so the behavioral evidence goes even, even perhaps more more difficult to deal with because again uh, we've got evidence that populations of course have different adaptations in different regions innovations can be lost as well as gained so this is something we have to bear in mind we tend to think that you know in, in the modern world good ideas always take hold and they spread very rapidly and we don't lose them it was not like that in the past if you've got small populations uh, some new discovery they made all very useful in their environment but if the climate suddenly changes and wipes them out their ideas die with them so this is I think in the past and this is what held back I think people like the Neanderthals that they were they were not stupid people but they were living in small numbers and they were you know maybe finding it difficult to network widely over the landscape if the environment was against them networking they are not going to be able to spread and maintain their ideas as much as they needed to build up that cultural complexity. So things could have been invented in the past and actually incredibly, even though they were useful, they got lost. So I think that for behavioral evidence, yes, for, for me, modern humans, we can certainly say representational art, I think for me is still something which occurs in modern humans and it's questionable whether it occurs in Neanderthals. Um, you know, we see those cave paintings at Chauvet, we see the little statuettes from those German caves of mammoths and, and uh, lions and, and so on. And that is the product of a modern human mind, unquestionably. Could Neanderthals do that? Well, I think we don't know yet. And of course, it's quite possible we will find some real representational art from Neanderthals. But at the moment, for me, that is still a sort of case where we can say that that's something unique to modern humans. But of course, if we go back to Africa 100,000 years ago, we don't find it there either, at least not yet. So although my view is that that uh, symbolic behavior 
probably had its origins in Africa, and I think that eventually we will find that evidence in Africa before 60,000 years ago, because it came out with modern humans, and modern humans took it everywhere they went. So I think it was there in Africa, but we haven't found it yet. So that's a big question mark. You know, was it there in Africa before 60,000 years, that representational art, and could the Neanderthals and Denisovans have developed it independently or through some kind of contact with Homo sapiens? Those are, those are questions for the future, I think. Yeah. So, of course, during our evolutionary history, we were exposed to several different types of selective pressures, like, for example, climatic ones, dietary ones, social. Uh, would you say that any one of them is more important than the others when it comes to the evolution of, of our behavioral repertoire? Mm. Well, yeah, I would say that uh, in terms of our African origin, I think climate must have been very important. Uh, you know, Africa's a large place. It has many vi varied climate zones and many different vegetation areas, and those were constantly shifting around with the major climate changes of the last, let's say, one million years. So I think at times these populations would have been isolated from each other. At other times, they would have spread and contacted each other, spread ideas, spread genes. So I think the climate was a very important factor in Africa. And I think that as we learn more about the climate, as we learn more about when the Sahara, for example, was habitable or not habitable, that's going to make a huge difference to the model we build up because you know, we've got the Jebeli Hood fossils in Morocco at 300,000 years or more. Um, how connected were those people with the populations of the rest of Africa? Or were they connected across North Africa to populations in the Middle East? So I think there's so much we still have to learn about those connections. But I think climate will be one of the most significant controlling factors, yes. In my first question about behavior, at a certain point you referred to the fact that there are different human populations that probably evolved a different set of behaviors or uh, slightly different behavioral repertoires to deal with different uh, problems that they were exposed to. Uh, when you use the word populations, were you referring to what some people call races or not? Or how do you think about the term race in this case? Yeah, so I think that yeah, race is a problematic term to use in human evolutionary studies. It's got a, a, you know, a history of misuse, let's say, abuse in the past. So I think we should avoid using that term. Uh, we can talk about population variation, there's no doubt that people around the world vary. They vary in many features of their body form, their hair, their skin color. But I think that uh, categorizing them by these strict racial categories, you know, is not only misleading, I, I think it's it's actually wrong. And when we look at the genetic data, we see that, yes, there, there are populations that have you know, largely separate ancestries in Africa, for example, over tens of thousands of years. But there is still some genetic contact between them. And I don't think there's any justification for the, certainly the old categories of race that, that existed. Um, even subspecies, I, I don't use that. Some people think the Neanderthals should be called a subspecies of Homo sapiens. I think that's a pretty meaningless category when we come to humans. So yeah, I, I don't think race is, is a useful term for us to use 
in the sort of work I do. But you accept the term population? Correct? Populations, yes, and obviously regional populations. You know, there's no doubt that, you know, local populations have differed from each other and grown up in different environments, evolved in different environments, and they're adapting to those environments. Also, I'm sure that we've had things like sexual selection, what we could call cultural selection, has sometimes steered populations in different directions. So it isn't all natural selection. There can even be some sexual selection or cultural selection, which steers populations in different directions. That certainly had an effect. And for me, and I think for most geneticists, most of the features that we call racial today, regional, they've evolved very recently. So blue eyes, for example, appear to be a product of the last 15,000 years only. So that's a very recent derivation. Uh, light skin appears to be a pretty recent uh, development. So some of these features are pretty recent and don't have, in many cases, very much DNA controlling them. So they can change quite rapidly. And things like bottlenecking, imagine small populations migrating to the Americas or small populations migrating to Australia and New Guinea again you could have had founder effects where that small population is taken from a larger population and it won't be typical of its whole population but that little subgroup will then go and found a whole large population on a, on a new continent so you can have those effects as well uh, and some of those differences population level differences Uh, some of them could derive from the fact that people were exposed to different uh, social environments and cultural environments, like, for example, some of them, I guess, in certain populations derived fr from the fact that those populations adopted agricultural practices. Correct. Yes, yes, certainly in the last 10,000 years, we see the effect of selection within human populations from the adoption of agriculture or pastoralism. These have played a role. So, of course, we've had the development of tolerance of, of, of milk, of lactose when you're adults. There are mutations that allow that. Um, and, of course, we've had the selection of pathogens. People who live in malarial areas have had to develop genetic defenses against that which are a balancing act because sometimes those defenses can be detrimental but if if by and large if by the majority they are working to protect from that disease then that will be selected for yes and i think that we've had a huge amount of change in the last 10,000 years with agriculture and pastoralism yeah okay so just to make this point clear before you we move on to the next one When you say that race is a misleading term or a, a term that is not useful from a scientific perspective, you're, you're mostly talking about the fact that from an anthropological, biological perspective, it's not useful. You, you're not including in your answer the fact that it's also uh, politically charged. Or yes, are you? It, it is politically charged and I think that's why we have to be careful about using in our area where we're trying to obviously use science to document human variation um, I think we always have to keep an eye on the wider world and how we use our terms and equally with you know global climate change you know a lot of us are looking at the impact of climate change in the past we have to keep an eye on the current debate and make sure that we can inform the current debate with data from our own field. And that can apply in so-called racial 
you know, science as well. There's a huge amount of data now, huge amount of genomic data on modern human variation, which we can apply to those issues. So uh, there are people, probably not many scientists, I would say, that uh, speculate that nowadays, because we live in modern, technologically advanced societies and we have things like advanced medicine and others, that nowadays our evolution slowed or we are no longer under natural selection. But does that make sense? Not to me, no. Uh, I mean, first of all, of course, there are, there are billions of people in the world who don't have the best medical care, who don't have uh, access to, you know, good drinking water, who don't have all the food they need to, to develop the healthiest bodies. So those billions of people are certainly strongly under uh, the effect of natural selection. And even within our urban environments, we are. And it can be just as much as, uh, you know, a selection going on in in the new, next generation. So each of us has maybe 40 or 50 mutations in our DNA compared with our parents, new mutations. Now, many of those are not going to do anything, but they go on into the future generations. And that is evolutionary change going on. Uh, under the surface, every generation, there is new genetic material being created through through change, which evolution can work on. Um, and of course, even within you know these societies that we're in now, there are some people who have a lot of children and some people who have one or even no children. And again, that is a form of selection that will make a difference generation by generation to the future. And of course, if we get onto the, the difficult and worrying you know, topic of, of global climate change, the changes that can occur in the next few hundred years, if they really are as bad as many people predict, it's going to have massive effects on the human populations because huge areas of the tropics and subtropics will essentially become uninhabitable for any humans. Imagine the effect that's going to have on the people who survive in the long term on the earth. Uh, and I mean, maybe this is a complicated question, but with the knowledge that we have nowadays and the scientific tools, is it possible for us to predict in what ways we will evolve in the future? Yeah, I'm often asked that at the end of talks, and it's, of course, impossible to answer. Evolution doesn't have a forward look. Evolution is about what works now. It doesn't have a forward look about what's going to be useful in the future. Um, and, you know, there are these misconceptions. So, you know, many times people have said, well, we must be getting bigger and bigger brains. Well, actually, the opposite is true, of course. Uh, brains are energetically very expensive. So, you know, there's no point having a big brain if you're not using it all. And if you've got other things to do with the energy in your body, then, then run that big brain. So there's evidence that our brain sizes have decreased five or ten percent compared with our stone age ancestors um, and there are various arguments about why that's happened certainly part of it is related to having smaller bodies our hunter-gatherer ancestors had to be bigger more muscular stronger to cope with the dangers of the natural world when you move into more settled communities the body size tends to get smaller so for a start of course women have got to give birth to their babies with a smaller body with smaller hips so there will be selection for smaller brain sizes. Some people feel that a smaller brain in some ways can be more efficient. Uh, certainly 
if you've got a smaller brain, it's using less energy, which means that uh, you know your your diet maybe as a as a farmer could actually be more restricted than as a hunter gatherer. Maybe having a smaller brain means you you know you can run your brain effectively with the energy you've got from your diet. Uh, even if it's less quality, lower quality than it would be as a hunter-gatherer. So I think, yes, our brains have got smaller, so one could predict that that won't change in the future. I don't think our brains are going to ever get bigger again uh, the way evolution is running. If anything, the, that trend for smaller brain sizes could carry on. But beyond that, I'm, I'm not going to go because it's total speculation. Nobody knows. And as I say, I think that Looking at the climate of the Earth in the next few hundred years is going to be a much greater determinant on where human evolution goes. And since you refer to our brains, I guess that another important aspect here that we have to take into account is the fact that it's not only about brain size, but also about brain structure or organization, right? Because, I mean, there are other animals that have bigger brains than ours, but they still aren't, aren't uh, more intelligent than us. So, I mean, it also depends a lot on how we, on how our brains are organized. Correct. Yes, that's right. Yes, it, it isn't just about the size of the brain. It's obviously the structure of the brain, and that's one of the the regrets we have is that we we don't have a Neanderthal brain to look at to compare with our own. We can look at the rough proportions of that brain, but how did a Neanderthal think? You know, could Neanderthal speak like us? Would they have had that potential? These are fascinating questions but really difficult for us to get a grip on what seems to be so at least for me and reading the literature is that this globular brain case shape which obviously we developed particularly within the last let's say 200,000 years um, some of it seems to be related to differences of proportions of the brain within and the cerebellum for example at the base of the brain that does seem to be larger in later homo sapiens and uh, that could be important in in terms of coordinating the work of the whole brain um, the upper parietal region seems to be expanded in modern humans compared with neanderthals and homo erectus and so on is that a direct message that this area is important or as other people have argued is it that the cerebellum enlarging has pushed up the rest of the brain so this is actually a byproduct of other changes going on so there's a lot we have to learn um, I think we still have a, a, a very poor model of how even our own brains work let alone the brain of a Neanderthal so we're thrown back to the material culture what did these people do with their brains 50,000 or 100,000 years ago and I would say certainly the behavioral gap between us and Neanderthals has narrowed. Some people would say it's disappeared. I, I don't go that far. I think that as we as we look at the behavior of modern humans at 30 or 40,000 years ago, I think it is distinct from Neanderthals. It's more complex. I think these people were living in large groups, networking more with a, an ability to extract far more from their local environments in terms of raw materials, in terms of food, uh, much more intensively extracting resources. So I think that was one reason why we succeeded and these other species eventually didn't. Uh, you've probably seen recently in the last couple of weeks the suggestion that projectile points, maybe on spear throwers or maybe even bows and arrows, were around in Europe uh, more than 40,000 years ago and this would have given modern humans some kind of advantage over the Neanderthals. It's a possibility but we need a lot more evidence before we can back that one up.
<laughs> yes, and maybe that will make a, a good bridge to our last topic, because since you referred to uh, basically how Neanderthals got extinct, uh, what are some of the major known unknowns in our evolutionary history? I mean, questions that we want to tackle and that we, we want to answer, but we haven't been able to do so yet. Mm. Well, I think, yes, just on that question of the Neanderthals and the Denisovans and Floresiensis and Lusinensis, what caused their extinction? Were we directly involved? What were the processes on the ground that led to their extinction? And the other side of the coin, what were the processes on the ground that led to Neanderthal DNA and Denisovan DNA coming into modern humans? It was obviously interbreeding, but were these friendly encounters, more hostile encounters, adopting babies? What were the processes that led to that transfer of Neanderthal DNA and Denisovan DNA into modern humans? We don't know the answer to that. Um, and when we look at those populations, like the ones from Flores and, and Luzon, what were their origins? How are they related? Are they related to Erectus? Are they something much more primitive? And how did they get to those islands? Uh, did they have boats? I think that's less likely. If they got there more than a million years ago, I think that you could have natural forces such as tsunamis, which, you know, it's a tectonically very active area, lots of eruptions, earthquakes, tidal waves quite common. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the one that we had in Southeast Asia oh, six, seven, eight years ago now, people were found out at sea on rafts of vegetation 150 kilometers from where they started on rafts of vegetation, still alive after a week. So if that can happen in the last few years, when you've got tens or hundreds of thousands of years, I think those populations could have somehow, amazingly, it seems incredible, ended up where they were as a result of natural processes such as tsunamis. So yes, their origins is a great mystery. Um, I think that, you know, the mysterious species Homo naledi, you know, which we've got in South Africa around 300,000 years, a very puzzling combination of what seemed to be very human features and much more primitive features, such as that small brain size. You know, where the hell did that species come from? And, and what happened to that species? So I think, that's again another great mystery. Um, I've mentioned Erectus. You know, I think that we have such a poor knowledge, really, of Erectus over its whole range and its whole evolutionary timescale. I think there will be more species to be uncovered in that assemblage that will refer to Homo erectus. Um, we've got the whole evolutionary history of the Denisovans to be uncovered. You know, where did they originate? Were they? A Southeast Asian population that now and again went up to Siberia, or were they more widespread in the north? Um, are some of these Chinese fossils that we have already, such as Dali, uh, Jinu Shan, Harbin, are these actually Denisovans? And will we ever have that combination of complete fossils and complete genomes to really say who the Denisovans were um, and how they relate to us and the Neanderthals? Uh, and so, yeah, that's just a few, I think, of the, the, the unknowns. We haven't got onto the origin of the genus Homo, but, you know, what was the driving force for humans to originate between two and three million years ago in Africa? I, I don't have an answer to that, but that's a great unknown. Um, and, of course, what was the common ancestor of us and the chimpanzee lineage? You know, what was that common ancestor, semi-bipedal even? Um, where did it live? 
what did it look like? Um, I think you know, these are all fascinating questions for the future, plus recognising that, as I've said, our knowledge of the fossils today, it's pretty good in, in Europe, but even then something like the Epidema fossil can come and surprise us in Greece at more than 200,000 years. But when you look at Africa, our fossil record comes from less than 10% of the area of that continent. And yet we know from stone tools, people were living all over Africa. Think of Asia, the whole of Asia, we've only got one significant ancient human fossil from the whole of the Indian subcontinent. So who was living there for one and a half or two million years? You know, we really don't know. So there is so much to learn and it's it's a really exciting time to just for me to still be involved in this field and see the incredible rate of, of discovery, both from the fossils, the archaeology, and also, of course, from the DNA. So just one last question before we go. Earlier in the interview, when I used the term missing link, you said that in your area of studies, anthropology, paleoanthropology, that people, it seems that they no longer like that term, correct? Why is it? Why is that the case? Well, I think for me, obviously, you know, I work in the Natural History Museum and just down the corridor are the bones of the so-called fossil bones of Piltdown Man. That was held as a missing link between humans and apes. So people still talk about there being a single missing link, as though there is some creature that's going to be halfway between a human and an ape. Uh, there was no such creature, of course. What we look at in the fossils is, a, is composites. You know, we see almost a cut and paste job. When we look at Australopithecines, we see that they are not kind of exact halfway houses between modern apes and modern humans. They actually were two million years old and they have their own unique combination of features. Um, they're not missing links. And what we should be talking about is, well, there are millions of missing links. There are millions of missing links from our common ancestor with the chimpanzees down to us. And equally on the chimpanzee lineage, there are millions of missing links from that common ancestor to the modern chimpanzees. So, yeah, I, I don't like the idea that there's just one magical find that's going to be made uh, that we can call a missing link. Um, there, are, there are thousands, millions of missing links. Uh, we only have bits of this story. We try to piece it together. Uh, and, yeah, missing link, is, it's a misleading term for me. Okay, so Dr. Stringer, would you like to tell people what are some of the best places on the internet for them to find your work? Yes, so, uh, well, I'm on Twitter, so you can find me on Twitter. So every Friday I post a Fossil, a fossil Friday fossil, um, and I try and post, obviously, information about new papers and things. Um, there's a website at the Natural History Museum where you can find uh, my data and you can download some of my papers. Um, obviously, I've written some books, and I think you, you know, you've mentioned those already. Uh, people can read those books, and, um, yeah, I, I'm... Now and again, I'm on the radio or the TV or a documentary program, or I'm doing, you know, podcasts with people like your good self. So, yeah, I'm around and I hope to be around for a while to come. Okay, great. So, uh, Dr. Stringer, I will be leaving links to all of your work in the description box of the interview so that people can check it out. It's very interesting. And again, it was a real honor to have you on the show and a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you very much. Well, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. 
Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep this channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1 would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, you can also support me via Subscribestar or Paypal. And please share the video, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gilinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Yane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Dr. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervois, and Bo Weingard, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.